I want to begin by thanking all of you who sent us beautiful notes of pastoral care uh, during this week as my wife, um, she broke her foot last Sunday and um, we had a whole week of a number of different um, doctors and tests and all sorts of other things that we had to go and do. Um, so yeah, so I just want to begin by thanking you for that. And um, yes, normally she would have been at Eleonora preaching this week, being the second week of the month, but um, obviously she's at home resting and with the kids, and I'm really hoping they're looking after her right now. <laughs> um, but in the midst of all of the various doctor's visits and things that, that uh, we did, I was listening to the radio at one point, and um, I can't remember what radio station it was. It was one that's not familiar to me because it was in the waiting room. But um, the radio commentator was saying that um, he was reflecting on that song, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Who's that by again? <laughs> you really thought I didn't know that. <laughs> and, um, and he was saying, he was saying, you know, that's, there's something about British understatement in that song. Because if that had been written by an American, it would have been, I love you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not she loves you. Do you understand? And I was thinking about that. It just, it, it was an, uh, an earwig that got stuck in my head all week. And I was thinking about this. And I thought about mission in the 21st century. And I think, I think that we're struggling with that same issue. Because we are too busy going out into the community saying, God loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And hoping and expecting that people out there are going to be like, oh, that's wonderful, that's great, I want to hear that, I want to connect with that. Instead of us actually saying, I love you. <laughs> I love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As some of you are aware, I recently came from a team ministry situation. There were five of us ministers. And I developed a really close relationship with a number of people in my team. And I would say to them, I love you. I would get off the phone and we'd talk about business and everything else. Oh, there you go. He's calling right now. <laughs> and I would remember to finish the phone call with, all right, love you, mate. And you'd hear this awkward pause. And then, love you too. <laughs> and then, no. We still do that. I talked to one of my colleagues last week and, and I'm like, love you, brother. And he's like, love you too, mate. Because I genuinely felt that that was such an integral part of what we were trying to do and who we wanted to be as the people of God in that moment. And we can have a laugh, but there is a, a very serious underpinning to this. Because if we genuinely love and appreciate what Christ has done in our life, then that begs a response from us. Yeah? Yes. And that, that's where I'm coming at. That's where I'm, I'm coming from. We had a bit of a running joke in the email in preparation for, uh, for today. Um, Phil was suggesting that we should do the classic uh, Olivia Newton-John, uh, Let's Get Physical, and just change the lyrics. Um, <coughs> so I figured I'd go with it. But there's something to be said about mission being about a muscle that needs to be worked out. You know, and this goes back to our whole I love you thing, because when you first go to the gym and Lord knows I've been meaning to go back in quite some time, 
It's hard. It's, it's hard work. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. And it's awkward to declare to the world that, you know what? I want to love the world with the love of Jesus. It's awkward. It's hard. It's difficult. But like with exercise, it's something that you just get doing and you keep going. And that's why my mate now does not flinch when I say I love you on the phone. And I have noticed he started doing it with his team as well. So I hope all of that kind of helps us understand because this passage is a very difficult one. It's a very tricky one for us to understand, you know, the, the circumcised and the uncircumcised and all. It doesn't really appeal to our context. So today I'm going to unpack a little bit of that context. Then we're going to dive into what is this challenge of being missional in, today, in today's day and age. You with me, church? Amen. Let us pray. God, you are with us. You speak to us. Lead us and guide us by your powerful and mighty hand this morning. I pray in Jesus' name and the people of God respond. Amen. 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 <clears throat> For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Read this with a 14-year-old. I want you to imagine... I read it with Betty. I said to her, do you understand what this says? Uh, yes. Yes, Papi, I do. Really? Okay. Um, so there's this guy called James. And he used to eat with the Gentiles. And then she just rattled it back off. And I said, but what does it mean, darling? What does it mean? Oh, I don't, I don't really know. I don't, I don't really understand. Why? Why did he belong to the circumcision group? You know, that made her very awkward and she started kind of giggling a little bit. <coughs> well, let, let's, let's break it down. Okay, so Paul, he is an evangelist. He is a preacher. He is going out there and he's preaching to people who don't know God, right? So when you, when you read uncircumcised, read that. People who don't know God. When you read circumcised, read people who do know God. And in this case, Jews or, or non-Jewish converts to Judaism. So that was the first thing I had to explain to her. And yes, I could have gone back to Abraham and I could have gone back to the beginning there. Sorry, Carol, back up one. <laughs> and I could have gone back to all of that and I would have unpacked all of that. But, but no, I wanted it to be in much more simpler terms. And, and Carol's just stolen my thunder by showing you. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. I got a little bit more and then we'll jump into that one. She can see, she can see the next slide. And so she's like, she's like, oh, I know what he's talking about. <laughs> this guy, James, brother of Jesus. Now, his name's not really James, right? This is really important. His name is Jacobus. Okay, can you say that? Jacobus. What does it sound like? Jacob. That's exactly right. Jacob. Catch a bus. <laughs> um, Jacob. And why, why is that important for us to be aware of that? Because not only was he Jesus' brother, but he had this name that reminded the Jewish people of the patriarchs. It reminded them of the Torah. It reminded them of the Old Testament and the rules and everything that was put in place. Now, the rules and traditions of the day were that the next living blood relative of the leader would be the one who takes over. Okay, We don't know too much about James. We have a letter from him in the epistles. It's a very good letter. I highly commend it to you. 
but it's all about church governance. Church council, put that one in your homework. We're reading it before the next church council meeting. <laughs> Just kidding. But it's all about church governance. It's all about how we should run the church. And it's got in there those wonderful passages that say things like, you know, if you have a problem with your brother, go and see him and then take an elder. And it's got the passage about, you know, the prayer of a, of a faithful one can avail much. Those passages are in there because it's all about being church. Because that's what James was all about. That's what he was focused on. He wanted this movement that his brother had started to continue and do what it needed to do. But he was very much leading a Jewish sect. He was very much leading a Jewish church. And Paul really resented that. Because you see, Paul had been of that ilk. And Paul's master, Gamaliel, he was a head leader in James's church. And so he's coming along and Paul is, is meeting his, his master and his friend and he's meeting James and he's saying, but these guys only want a kingdom of God that's full of Jewish men, really. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus preached. And so he begins to challenge this authority. Now, who does he challenge? In our reading, it was a man called Cephas. Yes. Again, not his name. His name is Peter in your Bibles. Originally, Peter's name was Caiphas. Caiphas. But in Greek, they did this thing where if you put an A and an I together, you don't say I, you say E. So it turned into Kephas. And then the Latins got it, my people. And they were like, oh, forget this. This is too, too busy to make it a C. <laughs> and then next thing you know, 2,000 years later, we read Cephas, which is not an incorrect pronunciation, but it helps us to understand that this person, Peter, was the one whom Paul was challenging. I love stories about Peter. Peter is a very human man in the Gospels, is he not? And he seems yet somewhat elevated to this great and awesome level when you're getting into the, the um, epistles. Like he's this great leader in the book of Acts, you know. He preaches and 3,000 are saved. Gee, what a brag. <laughs> I'd love to have something like that happen. That would be amazing. But not everything he did was right. Dare I say, not everything he did was in accordance with God's will for the time. And this was the big challenge of his day. Now, now I can show you my graphic. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. So what we have here is we have a situation where we have the people who are in. These are the Jewish people, the circumcised people, and the people who are out. We call them in our Bibles Gentiles. The Jews call them Goim. But we should actually be saying us. Because as far as I'm aware, no one here is of Jewish descent. And so all that's going on there is about Peter saying, don't preach the gospel to the people who are sitting here in these pews. I want to just leave that to sink in for a moment with you, please. Think about your life. Think about how you would be if you did not have this freedom to access God's word, to hear it being preached, to experience God's love. Because that's what the circumcision party was all about. They were all about saying, you know what? These people who are not of Abraham's line, we're not interested. 
But yet we see in the Gospels, we see in John in particular, Jesus speaks to non-Jewish people. He knows that there is a gospel that is meant for the whole world. It just was meant to begin with the Jewish people and then go out from there. And what was happening there, thank you, Carol. What was happening there in Galatians is that these um, people of the Jewish tradition, they were all standing by um, as a block to stop the outside people, the Gentiles, from coming in. They, they literally would form a wall. You know, like in soccer, how they stand there and they form a wall. They would do that at the front of the synagogue to prevent them from coming in. And what that did, thank you, Carol, is it built a brick wall of circumcision between the ins and the outs. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, Esteban, the wall's facing the wrong direction. <laughs> And the Jewish tradition people, they should be on the other side. That's how I had it initially. And then I realized something. Who are we in this? We're the yellow dude. We're on the inn. We're in our churches, in our Bible study groups. We have our Bibles, our Bible apps, our podcasts, our radio shows. We are in the inn. We're there. There are people out there who Christian tradition, picking up from that old Jewish tradition, is saying, no, we don't want those people in our churches with us. Now, at different times in Christian history, there have been different people. At one point, I was among that group. A brown person from the Latin American world would not have traditionally been welcome in the 1800s, for example, in a congregation such as this. And yes, when I visited the United States in 1997, my African-American father and I were not welcome in certain churches. It is true. It is sad. I've experienced it firsthand. As have many of our Aboriginal friends people from different cultures, as have people who have come here seeking love and acceptance and engagement. Now, there are many people, I'm sure, that come to your mind right now who we think to ourselves, ooh, would I be comfortable sitting in the pew next to them on a Sunday morning? And maybe the answer is no. But I want to challenge that because I want to tell you, these pews were not meant to be comfortable. Are you with me, church? These pews were meant to make us just slightly uncomfortable. Why? Because if they're too comfortable, you'll want to stay here. <laughs> you won't want to go home. You'll want to be here every day. And you'll want to be with your friends and with your neighbors and open your Bible and look at one another and say, isn't that lovely? And have a cup of tea and international roast coffee <laughs> and think, wow, this is great. But no, dear friends, these pews are not comfortable. And you may be feeling it already. Are you feeling a little bit, I want to shimmy, you know? I'm getting a little bit restless here. I hope you are. Sorry, that was a bit of a salsa move for you there. I hope you are. <laughs> because these pews are uncomfortable so that we don't want to stay here. Because the message that is seated here, that is birthed here, is actually meant for out there. 
The number of people, as you know, I go down to Caloundra, Kira, Tally, Eleonora, and I'm doing nursing home visitations there during the week. And I go there and I tell them, I'm the minister at Pimpama. Do you know what they say to me? The old church on the highway. They know you. They know you in Caloundra. When I go to Oakenflower to head office, they know you. Are you feeling proud? You should be. They know that 3,000 people regularly gather here to remember the Anzacs. They know you. And this is why I'm preaching this message, friends. Because God is at work among you. God is already bringing people. We have two baptism requests one week apart coming up in June. Isn't that amazing? I'm meeting with the families. I'm opening the Bible with them. I'm praying with them. One of them even said, I don't think I've opened my Bible since I was in Sunday school. I'm like, what a privilege. Perhaps if I were in the other group, I might be saying, well, that's really bad. You know, you should really. (laughs) But I'm not going to do that. I find it a privilege to witness and to be able to evangelize in those spaces. And I want to encourage you to find that privilege yourselves. Now you might be thinking, but Esteban, you know, I don't, I don't know my Bible that well. I don't, I, I don't read Greek or Hebrew. I don't, you know. Do you know the love of God? Do you know that God loves you? And when God loves you, it prompts a response from us. And that response is to say, I love you. Okay? Now, I, I, I said before that this is like a muscle. It needs to be exercised. So you're going to say it with me. Ready? One, two, three. I love you. Okay? Once again. I love you. See? It gets easier, doesn't it? I know it felt awkward the first time. But then you heard everyone else saying it with you. If we love our community, if we love our neighbor, it's going to get easier. You don't need to know your Bible backwards, forwards, inside out. Jesus said, if you know my father, if you know me, sorry, you know my father. You know his love. And you may feel that maybe you don't have the capacities you once did or the strength you once did, but that's fine. Because once you exercise that love, in whatever way, shape, or form you can. God can do amazing things through it. Thank you, Carol. Paul admonished Caiaphas, Peter, in front of them all. He said, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He was challenging him because, you see, Peter had realized that there was liberty in Christ. What do you reckon that was, Barry? A triumph or a... (laughs) Sorry, he he had his couple of moments. He is challenging Peter because Peter has found liberty in Christ. But why is that liberty not being offered to those who are around him? 
Why is it that Peter is feeling so connected into this group that is that are the gatekeepers in Jerusalem who are the ones who are saying, hey, we really want this gospel to be for us. And then forgetting the people whom Christ had healed in front of him, had spoken to in front of him, had broken bread with in front of him. And I am challenged by this passage because I wonder as Jesus ate with sinners, when was the last time we as the Christian church did that. I've had the privilege of attending the Iftar dinner for the last couple of years, uh, hosted at Brisbane, Brisbane, it's not the council chambers, city hall with the, with the, the tower. Um, and, and I'd be one of like 5,000 people, so don't, don't worry. It's not, a, it's not like as if I'm sitting there personally with Anna Palaszczuk or whomever. Um, but in every table was a mixed bag of religious representatives, political representatives, and mostly people from the Islamic Association of Australia. And you could just feel the awkwardness at this table, as everyone else did not know what to do with the Muslim friend who was sitting there, who was supposed to be the one that was welcoming us and inviting us and connecting with us. Not even me. I asked him, oh, what are we doing now? What, why, why are we eating this one now? And my questions at the end just ended up annoying him because I think he had his ritual and he just wanted to participate with it. We've forgotten. We've forgotten how to eat with sinners. And I don't know quite how we're going to get back to that place. But I want to encourage us to take up those invitations Take up those opportunities to break bread in those spaces. Remember in Corinthians, Paul is talking about the Christians going and eating food, being sacrificed to idols. And he's saying, don't worry about it. Why is he saying that? Because it's more important for Paul that the Christians are with non-Christians. And that they're blessing them. And that they're, they're loving them. That they're encouraging them. Than it is that they are guarded about what they're participating with and engaging with. Because if we have Jesus alive in our lives, leading us and guiding us, we listen to his voice. And I'm sure he won't take us anywhere that would compromise us. Thank you, Carol. I want to bring this quote from 1 Corinthians for our attention. I've brought it to you from the contemporary English version because I think it, it takes away some of that cultural stuff that gets in the way sometimes. Paul says, Jews ask for miracles and Greeks want something that sounds wise. But we preach that Christ was nailed to a cross. Most Jews have problems with this. And most Gentiles think this is foolish. Our message is God's power and wisdom for the Jews and the Greeks that he has chosen. Even when God is foolish, he is wiser than everyone else. And even when God is weak, he's stronger than everyone else. Is God foolish? No. <laughs> but here Paul is using a figurative term. He actually is using terms from carpentry, I believe quite intentionally. He's saying when God is blunt, he's sharper than everyone else. Do you understand that? 
He's saying when God's integrity, like a piece of timber that seems to be not that strong or not that able to hold on to something, seems weaker than everyone else, it is stronger than we can ever be. Do you hear me, people of God? This is why I'm saying we need to learn how to eat with sinners again. Because if we believe that God's foolishness is greater than our wisdom and God's strength is greater than our weakness, then we need to believe that He will not allow us to be compromised. We need to believe that He will lead us into these places in the path of righteousness. Psalm 1 says that you will be planted by rivers of living waters and you will bear fruit in your time. Do you hear the words? I love mission. I love talking about mission. I love preaching mission. I love getting stuck into mission. But it's hard because, well, ministers can't be missionaries. Do you know why? I will, I will now regale you with the saga of my haircuts. <laughs> I used to have a man bun and a, a lovely fade. But I found that I had to keep changing haircuts, hairdressers, because when they found out I was a minister, they'd stop talking to me. This is why ministers come be missionaries. I'd be sitting there, and after the first haircut, oh yeah, oh lovely, oh thank you. Managed to avoid the topic completely. You know, talk about kids, talk about family, talk about life. Next haircut, oh, so what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, I'm a minister. Radio, clamp up. A good fade is about 25, half an hour. It's a long time to be sitting there very, very quietly in awkward silence. Um, and, and that happened. So I started, you know, I would go to Shayla Park and I would go here. There. And I found Christian barbers. They would love me. Oh, Rev, thanks for coming in today. Do you know how often they got closed down? It's crazy. It's crazy. I think God had it in it for me. I think he was closing down Christian barbers so that I would go to the ones that I could actually witness to. And share with you these stories. Now, dear friends, ministers come to missionaries because it's hard for us to walk out in these streets and be received, welcomed, open to. What we can do is we can continue to share with you the good news and ask that through our communal love, sharing out into the community, God can create opportunities for yes even the minister's voice, to be received and to be heard. We live in an age today where people want to hear authentic faith and love. And that is so many times more powerful coming from people sitting in uncomfortable pews than it is from people standing up the front talking about it. Thank you, Carol. I want to conclude with this. In Luke 10... Jesus appoints 72 and he sends them out two by two ahead of him into every town and place where he was about to go. See, Jesus wasn't the missionary. The 72 were. And he told them the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest therefore to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? We, we don't put lambs out among wolves. That's silly. The wolves will eat the lambs. I know. 
But like I said before, if we follow in the path of righteousness, God will not compromise us. God will let us go out there and our weakness, our lambiness, will become his strength as it leads us out. I chose this graphic because it shows a harvest field on a rainy day. Farmers cannot reap when it's raining. Can we? I think so. I think when it's raining the hardest is when the Church of Jesus Christ is most ready to go out and reap the harvest of the Lord of the harvest. Are you with me, church? I'm going to ask that you continue to pray for the mission and ministry work of this little congregation, a congregation that is known throughout the region, that continues to have an impact. And I believe God will start bringing people who are going to come in here and who are going to experience the love, the love that you've shared with me, with my family, with that community, and it's going to change lives. That's what we want. That's what we pray for. That's what we hold to. With that, I invite you to bow your heads as we conclude this time in prayer. Lord, you are an awesome God. Awesome because you don't pour out your love only on those precious chosen ones, but on everyone. <clears throat> and that as part of that pouring of your love, you have chosen us. And you speak to us and you love us. So, Father, be present in this community and in our love and equip us, continue to equip us to share your gospel broadly. Bless your people, I pray, with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.